Hello, everyone, and welcome to the debug log number 21. This week on the show, we have Oscar Clark. Oscar is an evangelist, uh, every play evangelist at Unity. And we met Oscar at Unite 2015 in Boston. One of the last days, Eduardo and I were walking around the showroom floor right when they opened up. There weren't a lot of people, but we saw Oscar. We knew who he was. He, he's hard to miss because he had the top hat that he wears all the time. And so we went up and talked to him about every play and just stuff in general. He's a super cool guy there. He actually volunteered to be on the show before we could even ask him. So we were thrilled about that. So we set up an interview. We talked to him. You know, we set up an interview late one night because that was the time that was best for him. So it was 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in America, and he was in England. So you do the math. He was. So we can't thank him enough for making that sacrifice, being on the show, and then talking to us for so long. This is like an hour and a half interview. So buckle up. There's a lot of good information, a lot of good stuff in there. You might need to listen to it a few times because he has a lot of neat insight that he's kind of learned over a pretty impressive career in the video game industry, and we'll talk about that too. So without further ado, do, I give you the debug log, episode 21. Hello everyone and welcome to the debug log. Today is a special day because we have a, a, a new guest from Unity Technologies. Here's Oscar Clark. He's a um, every play evangelist. Uh, he's also an independent game design and monetization consultant. He has his own uh, book. He's author of <laughs> Games as a Service, <laughs> How Free to Play Design Can Make Better Games. So welcome to the show. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It sounds like I've got about 15 different jobs. It's not far off the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a long list of accolades. I, like <laughs> oh, I think the thing is when you're old, like me, I kind of have been around doing things for so long and... Uh, Therefore, some people think you know what you're talking about. Uh, I mean, I, I am very yeah. lucky, very lucky. I, I, I get to work with this great company. You know, Unity is amazing, and um, we all know what effect Unity's had in terms of game developers. Um, right. And the lovely part of my job is I'm literally asked to look into problems that developers face and talk about them. And I've had about sort of like 17 years in the industry, and I've done a lot of work kind of building game platforms and monetization and understanding what makes games tick, and particularly how to attract audiences and delight audiences to make them feel like they're getting something of value. Um, so I have a kind of a slightly different perspective on what free-to-play should be than some guys. I'm not quite as obsessive about it as I used to be. Um, we could probably talk about that later. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I have this sort of passion for trying to put the player first. And uh, it's a it's just like great position to be in in terms of Unity. It's one of the evangelists. They have lots of evangelists. I'm the one that can't talk to you about tech, but I <laughs> but I can talk to you about why games tick uh, to a large extent, as, as far as anyone can. That is. That's very good. How long have you been with Unity? It's about um, let's think about a year and a half, just over. Uh, they acquired a company called Amplifier, which I was part of. Uh, I've actually been doing the same job for about three years now. And okay. um, I got uh, UC, who's like the, the, the guy who was the CEO of, um, uh, of Amplifier, now heads up the uh, kind of social services ad side of um, uh, Unity now. So UC Larkin, and uh, he basically kind of 
liked the kind of webinars and talks I was doing at conference and said, go and do this for me. And we can have some great fun doing this stuff about social games and capturing video. And this is when every play was just about the kickoff. And, you know, this, this idea of being able to sort of play a tablet or a mobile game and record it, get your face in the camera and sharing it, it's all really new. And, and so I jumped at the chance, and uh, three years later, I'm still here. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So I Again. guess you're working more in, in uh, mobile games, right? Well, yeah. I mean, let's give you my long and arduous history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, like I said, I did warn you, I'm old. Um, <laughs> the Back in uh, 1998, yeah, the dark ages, as I like to think of them, um, <laughs> there was this thing called a dial-up modem. I don't know if you remember those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, the lovely squeaky tones that uh, uh, you desperately hoped would connect through and let you, uh, you know, you use the earliest precursor of the internet. Um, so this is the era when Quake and Quake 2, and even just the beginnings of Quake 3, uh, was kicking off. And uh, there was an online gaming service called Wireplay, which was uh, part of British Telecom at the time. And I joined initially as a sort of a young upstart marketing guy. And over about 18 months, or just under 18 months, I think it was, uh, ended up running kind of the, the that experience, trying to do the design work for the, the platform, working with the developers on it, the community. I was running the community teams. So it's this awesome experience, and you get to do sort of crazy stuff. Like, I got to save Counter-Strike. Now, okay, it's a bit <laughs> of a lie. It is a bit of a lie. Um, but not entirely uh, a lie, because um, the guys who were building it originally had run out of money, and we were able to give them some money for some new computers, and the guys on my team were doing all the testing and the great thing is three of our guys got the names and the credits but they didn't tell me until 10 years later because they knew I'd be so upset that I didn't get my name <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah really really fantastic era because it was like the very early days of understanding why social games communities work and we had these groups and club captains and all this kind of stuff that were really encouraged a really thriving and, and passionate audience and you think about that and how that reflects now. And now we're starting to get to the sort of esports kind of as a really true power. Um, and I was lucky enough to be some of the, one of the earliest sponsors of some of the very earliest of the esports stuff. We had a thing called uh, Quaker Delica, which actually I don't honestly have any claim on any credit for. But there was a team that I ended up running, uh, who actually, a guy called James K, who made the first UK Quake tournament. Yeah, and you think about that kind of stuff. That's one of the joys of being old. Is I was involved in some of that really crazy early stuff that everyone looked down on, and we thought everyone thought the gamers <laughs> were spotty oiks, never did anything. Yeah, I don't think people now can imagine that time. Was like, <laughs> no, game, games are not popular at I all. Games are not popular <laughs> in the same way. Um, they didn't make billions of dollar industry, no. so it wasn't the same thing. Oh, I mean, it was yeah, crazy. And I did a whole bunch of other stuff, so I was quite well known back in the day in the UK. I mean, okay, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a Brit, so you can probably guess that. Um, there was a phone company called Three, there still is, and I was the games guy there. What was interesting about that was we got to do stuff that no one else did. So we ended up, I think in 2005, we did 68% of the UK downloads and plays. About 45%, yes, about 45% of the revenue in the UK, and that was on 5% of the UK audience. 
Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great stat. I love it. And I, I got, only get to quote it because um, I'm really lucky that the um, one of the guys who's collating data between the different mobile network operators made a mistake and sent me T-Mobile's data as well as my own. So, no, yeah. <laughs> so I could work out exactly the numbers for everybody. Because if oh, you right, know those right. different points, you could work it all out. And it was just this wonderful moment of kind of, oh, my God, I did do something good. But you think about the kind of guys that I was working with there. The first game um, that we put up was a game by a small studio called Sumia. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sumia, but you will have heard of Ilka Palanen, who was the CEO right, of Sumia, yeah. who then got bought by Digital Chocolate, who then went off and created a little company called Supercell, and apparently they've done quite well. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, they sort of done well. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I'm not saying that because, oh, well, I know, no, it's, it's not, the thing I'm trying to say with that sort of stuff is you you look at these, these brilliant teams now that are able to produce, you know, literally earth-shattering kind of game experiences, the billion-dollar games, and a lot of those guys were in mobile in the very early days. You know, you look at Rovio, you know, everyone goes on about the 51st game, you know, Angry Birds, but I got to launch the first game, which is a little thing. Well, it, there's a bit of argument which was the first game or not, but the first proper Rovio-branded game that I was aware of was that, um, a game called uh, uh, Darkest Fear, which is a top-down puzzle game and you think okay darkest fear what's that going to do with horror and it was actually genuinely scary we had this you had a yeah, great part of light it was a fantastic little game um nothing in compared to this this era of, of gaming of course but the, you know this is stuff that a small that small company that went, then went on later to make angry birds and right did years they made of nokia it, phone yeah yeah they made a bunch of stuff oh they made a lo- loads of stuff games for that yeah um so yeah i got to do that and i also got to work on a a little uh, Sony console project called um, PlayStation Home. Um, oh. So I was home architect on PlayStation Home. So, which sounds grand. What, hey, what does that mean? Yeah, home exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, it sounds grand. It's actually, be, it means that I'm the dog's body, that the, I'm the guy that all the political regions had to beat up. Um, <laughs> in, in theory, um, the idea was that I could produce a strategy for how the platform would develop. But in practice, it was a raging argument between marketing and tech, and somehow I had to make the thing look like a strategy between the lot. Um, and it was a great, yeah. great fun. I mean, a really hard job in many ways, but it was the first freemium console experience. Right. And that got, you know, there's some really interesting differences when you look at different monetization models, the psychology of players, when you look at the way a game experience that's a world that has many multiple games within it and then it sells things within that and how that all works together and there's there's probably more parallels than there are uh, differences which is why i wrote the book games of sense yeah now nowadays it just it was just ahead of its time it's waiting for vr oh, yeah. playstation vr because you had that combined with playstation home tell me yeah. man tell me i, I mean I've, i still wear the black armband 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I still grieve for my my lost child. Um, what, what, what was your adoption rate at that time? I mean, like, how many people PlayStation well, users actually used it, active users? So I, just so you, you, you know, I don't want to take too much credit of it, because it's a great team, and it was a, a lot of the project was already in place when I got there. I got there about three months before they were due to launch. And in that last three months, I had to try and find a way to sort of knock off the edges so we had something that remotely looked like a, a product. But by the time I left, something like... Um, I think it was 38 million downloads of the PlayStation Home because it was still it was on the cross media bar, but you had to actually go and get it and use it. Uh, so 38 million mm-hmm. people did that, and if you think about it, there were only 80 million PlayStation Threes anyway. Yeah, which is <laughs> not bad, not bad. Um, and there was a point where not long after I left, there was three million monthly active users. So I left before all the security hassle happened. It wasn't my fault. I did nothing to do with the security. <laughs> <laughs> Almost wish I did. did or, no, no, no. Yeah, I didn't break it. I didn't take the <laughs> the passcodes with me down there. Um, no, no, seriously. It was like uh, just before that, just weird timing. Um, it was like uh, um, anyway. So we did that. We. Uh, and I then sort of looked at the way that we had about sort of two, maybe two and a half million people monthly using PlayStation Home at that you know, before the security. There. But not too bad. And then the security thing happened, and the Home was the first thing turned back on. And the funny thing was that the, um, it was an extraordinary peak of new users coming back into Home, and the and the monthly active users went up to about three million. And so you think about that kind of. What was what was going on with home? And you think, well, actually, when you first started something like home, we were trying to create a platform, but we hadn't seeded it with content. We hadn't reached out and got really amazing content. There was some good stuff. It wasn't, you know, all barren. I know a lot of people make jokes about how barren it was and how you used to get attacked by ghosts, but that's another subject. Um, <laughs> but this idea that you had, you know, Red Bull Air Race, and that was a really decent simple flight sim you could play that showed what you could do but it wasn't quick enough to get the next game in and you know, the Sodium 2s and all these other sort of really great experiences that people did eventually build in home and what was it, what was their original like um, just the strategy behind that was it did it was it considered something they were really trying to I mean I guess they're always trying to push for profit or was it seen more as like a marketing and community building thing well I think it was a bit confusing both, in some I mean. ways but I mean let's go back to the very original the, the, the guys who were running were really amazing uh, people like the, the Pete Edwards and the, and the um, oh there's a whole whole bunch of, of guys Pete was the guy who had head of the team um, these are the guys who used to run the getaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, getaway 2 in particular and we uh, were working on effectively Getaway 3 uh, again this is all way before my time before I joined and they basically decided they were going to have a pub uh, and you would go to the pub and you would go and get missions and then you'd go out and you know, you'd meet people in the pub and you'd go and play missions and of course it evolves so this pub becomes a hub for all sorts of different games so it becomes a, a, a different, you know, variety of gaming experiences, all centered around a social space, and then that becomes home, and then home becomes this bigger beast. And Phil Harrison picked it up and and ran with it, and managed to convince the Sony um, uh, Worldwide, you know, um, organization to to back this. But unfortunately, he decided to leave before it was launched. And the result of that, I think, is that it, it definitely seemed to lack the political willpower in Japan, in my opinion. I mean, it was only my opinion, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and that, there's some little things that I think 
there's some things I learned from you know being involved with home and the team involved there is is the realization that this is a console company having to learn about ongoing pipeline of, of digital content mm-hmm. and they did a brilliant job of that but it was still a very big learning curve. one classic example of that is data I'm used to data I'm you know I've done data myself in the telco companies for a long time doing games for them but I was in these companies that live on data and I was trying to explain why we needed to have data inside PlayStation Home so we could know where people were getting stuck and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was ever I had to kind of cheat to get... So just add basic analytics to me? Like, analytics, exactly. And I had to cheat and get another team in to make the analytics for us because no one <laughs> believed me. And of course, the moment, this is the thing about these guys, they're so bright. Once they get it, it completely changes and they show exactly how to do it and they get it right. But it takes a, a bit of time to sort of turn the, um, uh, you know, the uh, petrol the petrol tanker in the right direction. If you get my drift. Right. That's fascinating, though. That's I mean, it does even just outside of VR, it does seem like that home was a little bit ahead of its time, ahead of its time because now you have so many more people just. We've had episodes about building community and building stuff for your games, and it, it seems like every game has. I like from Destiny to other things. They have common spaces and common. Yeah whether they're online outside of the game or whether they're just somehow just through sharing pictures like they ever play, all that stuff is... It's all, every game has to have that now, but right? This is a really interesting thing I've, I've learned. And it's, it actually goes straight back to the wireplay stuff, is that you need a catalyst. You need this kind of... this framework around which the community can build themselves. And that, that kind of yeah. catalyst needs to have some sort of shared law, some shared kind of... Uh, rules or mores or, or or connection that allows us to identify as belonging to that experience. You mean like they have some kind of like ownership over that area yeah, or something like, yeah, like a bit absolutely. of that piece of that universe, I guess. Yeah, and whether it's it's actual or not, I mean, the, in terms of the plot, the more the player feels that ownership and that they share that ownership with a select group the more effective that community seems to be. Uh, and it's about, really, you know, your job as a, as a developer, obviously, is to make a great game, but um, it's realising that you're the custodian on behalf of a player and that you want to make sure that the, you're empowering the players to connect with each other. Yeah, it's that, that sentiment of, of ownership that yeah. makes people play the game more. I mean, just look at uh, Minecraft. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But I think it's, it's, I, there are some things... Minecraft's obviously an amazing phenomenon, but I think it gets away with a lot of slightly kind of... Uh, not not ideal um, setting conditions because it's become this phenomena. Um, you know, it has this incredible... It captured the moment of what Lego was all about before, mm. before Lego ever understood it. This idea that I've got to have a... Even if it's only a token game experience, there's got to be a game experience that can motivate me to get on and build stuff. And then the freedom that you've got once you've got that motivation to get on and build stuff is extraordinary. And then being able to connect to other people to share that experience is great. But there's so many better, more streamlined ways it could have been done in hindsight. But of course, that game wouldn't have worked because you didn't have the initial uh, kind of joyful experience of discovery that Minecraft as its whole journey has been if that makes sense mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't plan now 
from the way I would build a game, you know, in the, in the sort of social experiences to think about the social structures and how they work and how you communicate and how you connect with people and how you kind of have these moments and reasons to return. It's kind of, it's kind of weird, like, that those, um, the job of that is already being done in a way, like, I mean, with stuff like Every Play, but also YouTube, yeah. especially yeah. for any types of games, because I heard, I was listening to a podcast today, because Zach and I have been playing Fallout 4 pretty heavily since it came out on Tuesday. I and, um, couldn't comment on the grounds that uh, this is the first time this week I've been up this late. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but it, somebody made a comment and I was like, you're right, you're totally right. They said this, this game, that game is made for this time in the sense that the moment that game releases, there are a thousand different YouTube videos about how to get the t- all the bobbleheads, how to get all the tin glitches, the money yeah. glitch, all these different specialized, yeah. how to upgrade your laser, how to get the cryolator gun. Like, because we live, because the community is the comments and the YouTube holes you go down, but it's made for, you expect that, because that's what we do, that's what Zach and I do during our lunch period. Yeah. Like, it's where the Destiny videos or other right. videos, you're just watching videos of people sharing. But it's, you know. it, what's interesting for me is, uh, again, it's this weird, it's a weird experience. As, again, I want to remind you, I'm old. Um, I remember seeing <laughs> in the Ministry of Sound in London, uh, so my first day on the job at Wireplay, and this Quakerdelica event I was talking about before, uh, and they had a boxing ring in the middle of this dance club, and they had screens up showing the Quake games going on. And that was like 1998. It was the first time I'd ever seen people treating a gaming experience as a media experience. And I think mm-hmm. what's transitioned here is that games now, that's become commonplace, that idea that anyone is a media personality. Anyone can be... Um, you know, have an audience, and that audience can be measured in tens, thousands, or millions. And it, what makes it interesting is the engagement of the people, and the game becomes not wallpaper because it's essentially it's still going to be a game. It's still going to be the thing that the people are passionate about, but it's the media within which the wider experience of the game happens, whether that's mm-hmm. in front of a camera or with a controller or whatever. And I think that's just fantastic because it, it opens up so much possibility. I mean, as a designer, as a game designer, that just starts to get my brain going, hang on a minute, right, okay, so I've now not got to just make the game. I've also got to make the game that the player's friends want to watch. Right. That's really making fascinating. It, it's, made, it's intrinsically shareable. It's like Seth Godin, you know, the marker. He's like, you have to build in those mechanisms for people to share. But nowadays... Th- those are built in, and, and what it makes it like the the thing that you're always trying to do with the game designer, trying to make that their game sticky in the yeah. way where they want to keep thinking about it. But now, like I said, you could go to work and just watch the stuff on the thing, or listen to the podcast, and people are giving strategies, and it, but making, it can remain constantly in front of you. Exactly, but making it shareable is not enough. You've right. got to make people want to watch what's shared. Right, all right, and that's that's just genius if you think about that. You know, the the the. This is where the, these ideas of, of, of kind of narrative stories, of, of social connections, um, you know, start to blur, and they start thinking about, hang on a minute, the narrative becomes my behavior, and the way that my audience will respond to my behavior as I'm playing this game. I mean, the list of things that we can do with this kind of stuff is, is almost endless. I mean, like you say, we talked about every play, and you know, this idea of being able to take, just pick up a device and get my face in it and be able to play that game and say, look, this is what I did today. And what was also fascinating is that is as valid an experience for somebody who's doing it just for personal validation as it is 
for someone who's doing it deliberately for an audience. Well, it feels like you're doing something, too. We just had that problem this, um, this past weekend. We took part in the Extra Life mm. on a gaming marathon thing, mm. and we're not that smart. So it took us <laughs> a while to get the streaming up and running, and especially with like the Xbox or the PlayStation, the consoles. You're like, is it streaming? It says it is, but I'm checking on the Internet. And then, of course, with PC, it's such just a pain in the ass to get that working. <laughs> but that's what's so neat about that every play thing. And one, it, it could help it just the ease of use, but also, two, it helps it happen on a platform that, like, on mobile. Like, how do you even do that on mobile? You can't even do that. I mean, they have that kind of built into some games on Twitch, I guess, right? But not really. I mean... No, we, I can't that, remember how many games we have nowadays, but it's in the sort of thousands games. I mean, it's, it's like 1,218, that kind of game, that kind of number. Uh, I should get you the proper... I should know this off the top of my head, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've had a busy week, and it's late, and I can't... Uh, it's past remember. midnight where you are. Oh, you can't... But, yeah, you have, you have a, you have a so, pass. And, um, yeah, but there's uh, such an incredible number of games, and they're all going to the same space. And the, the really beautiful thing when you think about these kind of experiences is the realization that it's not just about one space to communicate. So you, you share your video and you share it on your, you know, you've got your Facebook friends and there's certain people you want to share on that. And you might be Twitter focused, you know, some people are, some people aren't. Um, but you might also have YouTubers that you want to share things to. But then, so you find these different segmented audiences and you communicate in this kind of open way. Uh, that's not limited to one uh, output or another. You, you you find the audiences wherever they are. And that freedom, I think, is really interesting as well because it, it makes you start thinking about what audiences you want to share what things to and how the, each different audience will then respond to you. Um, and especially if you're a game developer. If you're a game developer, you want to try and harness this power um, to make it more interesting as a game experience you know, to really kind of get people connecting and that social glue we talked about earlier. So whether you're in a virtual world, whether you're using VR, whether you're using mobile, all of these little threads of sociability play into it. There's, I, I, mean, I could bore you for hours on this, by the way. And, you know, oh, so we love this stuff. We just, oh, I mean, no, we, no, we were no. talking about it last week. Yeah, I lo- we love this stuff. And this is another aspect. Which I'm going I'm to be the pointy-haired um, kind of business guy for a second. <laughs> um, there, there is actually a, a really interesting bit of psychology around the, I think the phrase is consumer behavior as risk. So what that means is um, the, there's work in a... Uh, looking at how people buy things and why they buy things and essentially there's four forces that affect our decision to buy or not uh, one of which is um, do I anticipate what I'm going to get you know I've got I've got delightful experience am I expecting it to be brilliant the other one is do I think I'm going to miss out if I don't get this thing now you know what's the opportunity cost involved scarcity. in this yeah, yeah. well scarcity is true that uh, definitely affects it but it, it could even be you know buy one get one free you know uh, if I don't get the buy okay. one get one free now I'm not going to get that extra value but scarcity like say there's only 50 of them am I going to be the 51st person and therefore miss out um, right. so both sides of that work yeah but that works if if the if it's well implemented and you only have 15 because what Absolutely. usually happens many times is that uh, they say in the in the game say oh it's only 50 of them and then they say oh the deal was so good that we're going to extend it so then that's not real scarcity, yeah. is it? That's, that's right. So remember, well, we've think... got these two forces that we've talked about so far. There's two more of them. And, and it'll make sense when, when I've done this last two. Uh, so the, the other one is real life. You know, the things I should be doing elsewhere. You know, um, the other experiences 
out there, the alternative, the substitutes that I should be putting my effort into. And the fourth one is social capital. You know, what's yeah. the social value of these things? So think of these three, these four things. They're all pulling in different directions. And like you said, if any one of them's not done brilliantly, they're not going to help me as a as a potential purchaser to feel comfortable enough to start making a decision to say, yes, I do anticipate the value of this. Yes, I do need it now. Yes, I do, you know, can set aside the other things I should be doing and buy that thing now. And my friends aren't going to think I'm an idiot. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And like you said, the reverse engineer, like to get that to work is to get that social proof actually working with your yeah. friends. It has to be shared across all those platforms, like you said. But like you said, it had to be shared across those platforms. It has to be something people want to share. Right? Yeah, it, it, I think in some right. ways, this is the saving grace, potentially, of, of really good freemium games, is that in the end, they have to be something that's authentic, that people want. And if they're not, eventually you will see, you know, people stop playing them. Um, and and uh, all that means is, you know, we have to sort of look at it a little bit like we look at it like music. You know, is that market is so rich with millions of people, potentially billions of people playing. I mean, Talking Tom has three billion downloads. You know, think about that. You know, that's just crazy numbers. Mm-hmm. I think, I think my, Angry, daughter, my daughter's one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Angry Birds is the same. It's the same sort of scale. I think maybe it's between the different titles, but yeah, it's a massive, amazing kind of scale we're dealing with. So, is it any surprise we're seeing games that are the equivalent of of pop music? And other games mm-hmm. which are the equivalent of classical or or heavy metal or whatever, whatever you're into, that niche, um, you know, and having these idea that some of these games are going to be designed for a mass market audience, some of these games are going to be designed for a specialist audience that have very particular tastes, and that's brilliant because that in that kind of environment when we're not all trying to be the Call of Duties or the GTAs or the Angry Birds and the Clash of Clans, if we could start looking at finding ways to communicate game designs that people care about regardless, you know, it might be a smaller group of people who love your game, but if there's enough of them there, you can still make a successful experience. What kind of, if you've, um, with the with the game monetization stuff, if I mean, is it like a like fits? I mean, whatever works for the right game type, or well, I, have, I mean, have you seen some strategies that are more effective than others? You know, yeah. I mean, essentially, um, I mean, I, I do literally go on about this for hours and have done this for days. Um, so, yeah, throw go ahead. At me. We have time. Yeah, um, we have time. <laughs> um, so, uh, I did a couple of blog posts recently. Uh, well, the last few months on the Unity blog site, and one of which looked at video ads, one of which looked at in-app purchase. The one about in-app purchase is probably the one that's going to make more sense to what we're talking about here. So, if you're looking at a game, you've got to try and work out where the value is. So. It's essentially two kind of basic formulas, uh, you know, you could argue, at the highest level. So is your game a kind of a one-time playthrough perfect nugget of joy, and you want you people will play it, complete it, feel good, delighted, and leave? And if it is, then you've probably got yourself a product, and a product that's going to have to be charged for in such a way, probably in advance of playing it, because no one's going to pay you after... Uh, they've played it because they don't have any need to and uh, unfortunately it's not the case that people like to pay developers in general 
just out of kindness or um, or because they love the game. They spend money because they expect future value. And that's not just me making that up. That's um, you know, There's been psychological research done by uh, a couple called Park and Lee in South Korea. They looked at in-app purchasing premium games and they said, okay, why are people spending money? And it came out unequivocally because they expect future value. So if you have a product and you can't expect people to replay it because it's a one-time nugget of joy, then of course you're going to charge up front. But if you're going to do that, you've got to acknowledge that that's a big barrier. That means you've got to excite people. There's four forces I talked about earlier. Yeah. They're absolutely critical. Make people care about what's going on and why. And you can do that with a product, provided it's beautiful and you're, you're not just another one of the substitute games. So there's a reason why a game like you know, Monument Valley or um, uh, you know, The Room or Thompson's Alone stand out. And that's because they have a little bit of something, a little bit of stardust that mm-hmm. makes you want them and, and desire them and stands out from the crowd. I have read that um, in-app purchases uh, are made only for the 2% of the um, players. Well, how let's much, get into how that. much of that is true? Well, let's get into that. So that, that's the other type of game, obviously, is when you do have the potential of replayability. And you said, right, 2%. Of the, that's an interesting stat, and I'll, I'll, I just want to say a little bit of the history before we go into some of the reasons why. So historically, we used to say uh, something between 5 and 10% paying. This is about five years ago. 5 to 10% people paid their money in a replay game. And, and this is all anecdotal because I'm taking averages of stats I heard games developers talking about over the last five years at various different conferences. I go to about 30 conferences a year, probably more actually. Um, and if you think about that, so it was 5 to 10% before. Then it was um, 3 to 5% about two years ago. And now we're hearing people talking about 1 to 2%. Now, what that means is they're going, okay, look at a free-to-play game. Of the people that download the game, let's say only 2% actually spend any money in the end. Now, is that a meaningful stat when you compare it, say, with a paid-up-front game? Well, the reason it's not the same is based on a... Um, have you ever heard of the Hershey's Kisses experiment? No. Okay, so... No. Oh, is, again, it's another sidetrack, but it will make sense, I promise you. Um, so, it's... There are some, lots of questions about how it should be used, this particular experiment. I'm going to, just for simplicity, just take, just go with it, because it's a really good illustration of what I'm trying to say. So in this test, you offer um, kids a Hershey's Kiss or a Lindt chocolate. Now, uh, I'm not a big fan of Hershey's Kisses. You may, be, you may be, you may not. But generally, they are not as um, high quality, shall we say, as uh, something like a Lindt chocolate, which is very high quality chocolate. Um So the idea was that you would charge one cent for the Hershey's Kiss and 15 cents for the Lindt chocolate. And about 70% of the people bought the Lindt chocolate, even though it was more expensive. But when you made the Hershey's Kiss zero and you reduced the Lindt chocolate by one cent, about 70% of the people went for the Hershey's Kiss. The power of free is phenomenal. 
it's it's not just a simple case of it's one cent bigger and therefore it'll be a little bit bigger. It's a complete change. So the idea that you should equate a download with a purchase is nonsense. So we shouldn't be thinking about 2% as paying being equivalent to the percentage of people who buy a premium game. We should be comparing how many people go look at a screen grab right. and then buy. And what I've seen in general is you'll get something like 10 times. And again, some of these stats vary and some argument why this come down a bit. But let's say something like 10 times as many people who would download your game do so if it's free versus not. And that's a, such a terribly kind of blasé stat and it's completely fatuous. Don't believe me. But, um, you know, test it for yourself. But it's not a bad rule of thumb from, from what I've seen in general. Yeah, I mean, so, I think I think for for indie developers, it's a lot easier to reach people if you have a free to play game. Exactly. It's, it's not the same to say, "Hey, could you check out my game and tell me what do you think about it?" And it's free. Yeah. Instead of it, saying, "Oh, could you buy my game, which is only one dollar," but and you know, it's it's not the same thing. It's not but the see, same then you have, but then Ronald, then you have like, then it's like the classic Mac versus PC debate, right? Because oh, then yeah. you have. Well, because then you have a, what it is, it's a perceived luxury versus something that's bargain. And yeah, I, I agree. I don't even think you should make, if you're going to charge, make it a, don't make it a dollar, make it five bucks. Well, you know, because at that point, yeah. it's like, it feels like it's a premium game that this is worth the value of this because this is, you know what I mean? Like yeah, the yeah, perceived yeah. cost of something makes something more valuable. Exactly. I think. No, that's absolutely true. And the thing is, um, the reason why free exists at all is a simple form of economics. Uh, when supply goes up, and demand is the same, price goes down. When when we have infinite supply, we do have infinite supply. I mean, you you could not play all of the mobile games on, on the App Store in your lifetime. We're gonna try. Don't tell Zach that. I probably played tens of thousands, well, at least ten thousand games in my lifetime um, that I can relatively be safe to judge based on. Mm-hmm. running an operator store where I had around a hundred games a week to review. Wow. wow. Um, and I lot. literally had about six seconds to make a judgment call, but I was always right because the games I put up on my deck always made some money. And, um, the games I didn't put, put on the deck didn't make any money. Oh wait, hang on a minute, that's because I didn't put them on the deck. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, the uh, so this is the thing about freemium is we're using the wrong. Try to compare paid and free. The reality is that almost everywhere freemium makes more money. Even on Steam, I've heard a recent recently that Steam actually makes a lot of money on freemium games, but we don't know about them. Well, I've seen the stats myself, so I, I, I could be wrong. I, 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 but I've heard that there's some really interesting. Um, you know, things happening in terms of premium on Steam nowadays, um, which has never used to be the case. In fact, if you think about it, something like a third, or was it two-thirds of the games? So a massive proportion of games were in the last year and a half on Steam. And so every market has changed radically in the last three to five years. Yeah. Absolutely everyone. Uh-huh. And this free thing is, is fascinating because where I think we make a lot of mistakes is, is twofold. One is that we assume that um, we can put any old thing in place and people will hand over cash and they don't 
You have right. to have something that people want and are delighted by. And you've got to make them want to spend more than once. That means you have to behave like a retailer. You have to learn the techniques of being somebody who, who is selling to a audience. Yeah. So you're essentially a retailer. Um, and I kind of try and break down the kinds of goods that you can sell. Um, you know, obviously everyone's got a different model. So my model looks at things like subsistence. So I have to have this stuff or I can't carry out like a health potion. Or I might look at something like um, a shortcut. So I have a bigger gun that's more powerful, therefore I kill the monsters quicker. Or I have bigger armor, which means I can take more damage and therefore I can I can succeed more more often than not. Uh, I think I think the 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 model like the that some of the movies have done like the League of Legends, but then even Cross the Road, how like they, I mean they have the ads and the, the the way they use video ads is genius too. But oh, really having it just for characters because yeah. that that brings back in that I would think that that idea of ownership. So like, oh, I'm going to buy well, that character. I want that's my thing now. I, yeah, that's the third right. one of these things. The social reason. So the 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 customization is a good one, and then the fourth one of these things is um, strategy. So we have a new way of playing. And you think about those four sort of things, and if you then put them in different forms, so like you can have a consumable version of any of those four. You could have, you know, so you could have a health potion or a, um, um, a one-time use of a character, for example. Uh, you could have a, 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 um, a generator that will make, you know, give you ten of these one-time use characters a day or ten of these health potions. I could hire an alchemist in my castle. And my alchemist gives me 10 health potions a day. That's a generator. It generates. I've got to come back to the game to keep getting the goods that I want. Yeah, or, uh, or a specific power that helps you pass the, the, the level faster. Exactly. Level. And any of those things. So the, the point I'm trying to get to is if we start breaking down the game in terms of, first off, is it fun? Where's the fun? And then, this is the thing I think a lot of people make a mistake in terms of freemium, is where are the soft variables? So is the game just about doing what I'm told the designer says, I have to run here and jump here and get this start, and only if I do exactly what the designer asked me to do, do I get all the points? Or is it a game where I have to move a set, set of paths and there is only one outcome? If you've got a game like that, a binary, are you win or I lose, you haven't got what I think makes essentially a good free-to-play game. Uh, you've probably got a product. You want something where there are different outcomes. There are possibilities to becoming more engaged in different strategies. And it's in those softer, fluffier avenues that you can find really cool things to offer people to make them feel good about the game. Now, you need to make sure the game's playable as a free experience because otherwise you're not being authentic. Because then you're taking something back. Yes. Like, once that comes up, yeah. But as long as you are giving them something of genuine value, and you show them that there's even more to be had with this other thing, now we're in a different story. Now we're talking about upselling players from the basic free game into something that they're going to get even more fun. And then I'm going to... That last twist of this is that we come back to the whole thing we talked about socially before... It's not just about the player spending money on this fantastic item. It's why is that fantastic item be something that other people are going to want themselves? 
So if you see me by the Vorpal Blade, you can see I can fight Jabberwockies. Mm-hmm. My God, you can fight Jabberwockies. I want the Vorpal Blade. That's when you start changing the dynamic entirely, where having to choose between getting a gun or not isn't the problem. It's, I'm playing the game, I've got a gun, but I haven't got the big shiny golden AK-47. I'd like that, please. Yeah, we, we literally all just bought the DeLorean DLC in Rocket League. This weekend. You're like, yeah, you're like we need that. to be a team of DeLoreans. I haven't done that. I should have done that. It. It's, it's wonderful. Oh. It's great. I, I, I love the game, but I, um, I, I am rubbish at it. I genuinely uh-huh. have no skill Join the club. at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually highly embarrassing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, this, I don't know, we've obviously meandered around a bit, but have I given you kind of the sense of this idea about replayability actually goes into ex- shareability goes into the player is um, the champion of everything that you make in the game so you know what I what I worry about though and I do I do genuinely worry about this is that a lot of people look at a game like Clash of Clans and they think oh okay we're going to copy the monetization of that now I have talked to those guys about where they went to when they made the game and they didn't go out looking at the monetization model as the core and then build a game around it they tried to build a game that was going to be bloody great you know it was important to them they, you know I know you know relatively wise he's a good guy and um, you know good friend and he's one of these guys who really is passionate about making things that people care about and he's he's done a great investment in making people understand that um, but then when somebody comes along and makes a Clash of Clans clone, they don't always come from the same place of design that those guys do. Well, like you said, they're not there just because it's free. Exactly. Right? They're there uh-huh. because it's invocative and intriguing, and it's also the, and there's no barrier of entry, so like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, I'll check it out, definitely. Exactly, exactly. So let's, you know, let's make games great, but let's not just try and use the classic sort of ratchet systems that, you know, in fact, actually, one of the things I'm... I'm this is the difficulty with it. This uh, I can make you glib comments about the best technique to use in any situation, uh, and the reality is, all they are are guidelines. They're kind of like frameworks of thinking. The reality is, test it and see what happens. If you want to make great games, you want to get people playing it and then see what they do. Um, and no amount of expertise, you know, age, you know design uh, chops or whatever will help you if players don't look at the game and go that was awesome that's it. I have two questions now actually mm. one wrapping that up but one, one about the whole thing but just about a strategy would you say like the, the whole I mean because you hear about that a lot like the whale strategy mm. is that just the laziness or has that actually been proven I know we can't tell a lot of times by stats and stuff but is that an effective model that some people have used, or is it just like, well, well, that's what we're going to go go for, and hopefully that'll work? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's completely terrible in so many ways. I mean, yeah, but, but um, there were there are some good things to learn from it. So the first thing is, uh, 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 there is no such thing as a whale in games. There are whales in gambling. So what right. I mean by that is, uh, in I am a whale in games in the sense that I am somebody who will spend money. And I will spend a reasonably, amount, you know, reasonably large amount of money, but I won't spend thousands personally. I'm not, you know, I'm a, I'll, I'll spend over £100 a month probably on games, um, but it, it is my profession as well as my hobby. 
In fact, it's you, research. It's, it's research. That's what we say. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. He, but don't don't use that word with my wife. <laughs> She's so bored of me saying that. Um, anyway, but the, the point is, I would anyway, regardless. Um, but I don't do it in every game. Why don't I do it in every game? If I'm a whale, surely I should be taking the game, the one that gives me the most uh, utility, the most fun, whatever the fun utility is in games, then uh, I can bore you on what that is as well. Um, but I'd be seeking the game that gives me the most utility and I'll be playing as much as possible. But I don't do that. Because games engage at a different level. They have different types of psychology. Uh, gambling experiences are about, in my opinion anyway, about adrenaline. There's an, an adrenaline response when you know that the result of a gambling experience is in, but you don't know if you've won or lost yet. And the intensity of that experience doesn't really deviate. But if I play a game, like, you know, Call of Duty or a, or a, uh, or a Fallout 4, um, I will learn the patterns. I will learn when to press bats, and I will learn which, whether to aim for the leg or the head. And I tend to go to the leg because generally that seems to work better. Um, you know, it's, I, you know, I learn a pattern. Once I've learned enough patterns, I need a bigger monster. I can't just keep playing the same monster. I need something with narrative to keep my attention. Because if I don't, I'm going to run out. I don't have the gambling personality. I don't get off on the risk factor. In fact, I'm one of those kind of guys who would be happy. Randomised rewards. Well, yeah, I don't mind randomised rewards to a certain extent. I'd, I'd rather pay to play a gambling game that doesn't pay out than I would to to bet in a gambling game. The yeah. stress of, of having to know whether I'm going to get a payout or not and therefore I've lost my money is, is actually not, not fun for me. I know a lot of people didn't like it and I don't have a problem. You know, I know why people do slot machines, you know, one-on bandits or whatever you want to call them. They're just nothing for me. Um, but that's the realisation that we have different psychology involved in these types of games. A whale is a gambling term, but what they do for whales in the casinos and in gambling games is nurture them, to tantalise them, to delight them, to make sure they're having a good time. Well, actually, why shouldn't we find players inside our games and make sure that we nurture them and make sure they have a good time? And they want to tell people about how great the game was. Well, that's a perfectly good thing. So, but if we focus on the, on the whale and say, right, I'm going to make a game, I'm going to monetize it off whales, therefore I'm going to have these $1,000 items uh, for people to spend money in each month and they're exclusive, blah, blah, blah. I think that strategy fails because it ignores a really vital piece, which is about the player life cycle. Most players, when they enter a game, have to go through four stages. They have to discover the game, then they decide what the game's for them. So they learn, it's a learning stage where they decide how the game fits into their lifestyle as well as learning the control. So learning is important. Once they've gone through discovery and learning, they enter uh, engaging. So once they start engaging, then they're actually playing, and that's the point where their likelihood of being able to decide to spend money in, a, in an informed way goes up. So if you want somebody who's going to spend money in a way that they like to do twice, three times, four times, then that's the point in time when you want to look at encouraging them and that could be using video ads or it could be offering them some great deals or whatever it might be but if you just slap them with the idea give me money now give me money now you know it's like going on a date and asking someone to give you money up front it's not a date then is it yeah yeah it kind of feels it always feels like when you 
when people like some families are like, all right, it's Christmas present. So what do you want? I was like, well, no, we should just like, go get me something. They think I was like, don't if I tell you, just give me money. If you're yeah. going to do that, I'm dumb. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the same idea with, with advertising. So when you see a game that has advertising as soon as you start or when you press pause and and it has the banner at the bottom or on the top. Oh. It's like, oh man, just stop. And <laughs> have you seen my my talk about uh, my my dislike for banner ads? <laughs> I, oh. I really don't like banner ads. Um, banner ads. Uh, oh god, so many things I could say about banner ads. They don't work. Uh, well, that's not true. Forty percent of banner ad clicks are either fraudulent or accidental. Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yes, yes. There are games that don't show don't show it at the at the beginning. But after yeah. a second, they show it as soon as you're going to play some, uh, press a button, oh, they, yeah. they show up on, on top of the button. It's like, oh, well, I hate given, that. Given the, I forgot what the stat is. Somebody, again, I'm, I'm really rubbish at stats tonight. Something like 80% of apps don't get um, played uh, yeah, at all. So you download it and never get played. Um, yeah, that's true. And you think, <laughs> well, hang on a minute. Now, if, I, if I'm losing that number of people, and then I'm going to put an ad in the way of them playing... That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, anyway. Do you think across all of those, like all the say, for many types of strategies, like you said, whether it's, you know, the ownership thing or they're buying certain customizations or whatever it is, do you think, like, I mean, maybe the one of the big secrets is, it's you know, expectation, the guiding expectations. It's like, it's like making sure whatever that contract you set out with the player at the beginning is, is, is followed through on. It's like if yeah. you have a child, like, watching, like, oh, they're watching TV. It's like 10 minutes past their bedtime. Now we need to go to bed. You go, oh, got to go turn on. Like, instead of going, hey, five more minutes, and we're going, you know, like, everybody's clear. I mean, that's the secret of parenting, just guiding expectations <laughs> and making everybody clear what's going on. There's any moment. Is that the same kind of thing, you think? I, I definitely think a good so. idea to think about? I definitely think so. And again, I think it, is, it keeps us honest as well, I mean, as designers. Um, if you think about it, that Park and Lee study, you know, the expectation of future value, you know, and mm -hmm. if you then apply that through the product life cycle, so we look at discovery, you go, okay, where's the expectation of future value? Well, if I play this game, I'm going to have a great time. Okay, great. When I get to learning stage, I've got to go through the hassle. Because when you, when you get something, you always have this buyer remorse. So you always have this yeah. kind of moment where, you know, Jesus, those controls are horrible. I haven't got used to them yet. Or why have they switched the um, the key that lets me, uh, actually, um, the melee um, um, on Fallout 4 is always irritates me. I don't know why. Like bumper or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's weird. Um, and I, I realize it's the same as Halo. Uh, yeah, that's what I noticed the other day, too, uh, the Halo 5. But yeah. I've, I've been so used to playing with other controls, I can't play either of them at the moment. Uh, quite well I'm constantly pressing B to um, uh, and well it's not B it's a, um, PlayStation but I can't remember what the, uh, which button it is but um, I've got a, I've got a, um, a Xbox controller in front of me so I can see a B uh, and I'm constantly pressing B instead of um, uh, sorry constantly pressing circuit instead of square and yeah. pulling up the pit boy yeah oh I don't want a pit boy I want a <laughs> Wrong time. Well, this, I guess it freezes time, so that's good. It's but. that frustration <laughs> that I'm talking about with this buyer remorse, because you'll have the worst experience possible because you don't know how to play. Well, Zach and I have noticed that with games. Zach does that, and I do that too, where we usually, the initial, like say you get a game and it's Friday night, you're home from work and you play it. And even if you play it for two, I, I didn't feel like it was Fallout 4, no. which is amazing, but for game, usually <laughs> games, I just feel like, ah, it's okay. Yeah. 
But then by the next morning, Saturday morning, I was like, oh, I want to play some more yeah. now. Actually, you kind of gotten past that process. And that's, that's when it's done right. So this, this frustration is, is, is not, you know, it's totally reasonable. Because when you go into to download it, you fill your imagination with what the game could be. It's full of possibilities. And we shatter those possibilities the moment we start playing. And we have at the same time this terrible kind of having to adjust the controls. There's everything against a player actually enjoying a game the first time they play. So if you're not instilling them with this expectation of future value, why would they go through that learning curve? You know, if you right. paid for it up front, you have to do it because otherwise you just waste the money. But if you if it's free, you've got no investment. And that's it. Yeah. And it's all about that onboarding thing. And that's one of the things. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, Fallout 4, I guess we're used to this just as an example. But I've always had that big beef. I used to have that big beef with Skyrim. Mm. Whereas I knew what the possibility, like, and maybe that's what Fallout 4 is. Like, I know what's beyond all this, right? I know that it's going to be crazy. There's going to be simulation stuff going on. It's going to be a big 50 to 100 hour experience. Yeah. But for people coming in there, I've known friends that, because Skyrim was an incredible game. Like, the yeah. story's all right, but it's an incredible game once you just get into those oh, systems. I love it. It's my favorite but, game of all time, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, but unless you have some kind of base knowledge of D&D stats, right, or other stuff, you have no, and people, I know a lot of people who are, I have friends that play games every night, every week, every whatever, but they're not hardcore, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not in the industry and they don't listen to podcasts like I do every day <laughs> and stuff. So they're just not, into the whole minutia of it, but they play games all the time. They're not just Call of Duty players. They'll play everything. Yeah. But they tried Skyrim. Like, this is, I don't mean, this is, because it doesn't have a, it just starts you, and you're like, okay, I don't know what to do now. Like, and for people that know, okay, oh, I, okay, let me, let me get my damage up, I'm going to get my stamina up, I'm going to get my blacksmithing up. Like, we know that, and we know that in Fallout. We know immediately, get to town, we're going to get to a market, we're going to start selling stuff, we got to start trading stuff in. Exactly. But no more people don't do that. And is that, I mean, you find that, I mean, they're doing well, and I guess my, that might just be a marketing thing, but do you think that's a problem, or do you think that's it's something that... This is, uh, you know... I'm talking about the ideal world and what I would always recommend, you know, to try and get developers to start thinking that. In practice, nothing's clear-cut like this. But if you think about that buyer remorse moment and you haven't built in an established way to increase this idea of expectation, I think so. I actually got often related to Bond movies. Uh, forget the fact that it doesn't have this, but in most Bond movies have the 10 minutes at the beginning. That's, oh, yeah, the stinger oh, at the beginning. That's yeah, fantastic, yeah. Like, blowing you away, and, and you can see that Bond is the best shot, the best driver that gets the girl, blah, blah, blah. It's, yeah, in fact, that's what it's called in every other movie. It's called the Bond opening. It is, yeah, it is right. called the Bond opening. And the Bond opening is actually not just about having a great moment that keeps you rear your seat at that point. It's about setting up the rules of the world. It's about setting up an expectation against which you'll measure later experiences. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah? I see so if you are getting your tutorial, whatever, I don't like tutorials either, but you obviously have to get some process to get people started. If you're not thinking about that opening experience like a Bond movie, you're not going to have that draw to keep them playing past the learning stage. Here, here's 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 the thing that I've, I think about a lot though. We come from, I mean, our daughter and Zach, you guys are 25, right? Yeah, 25, six. Mm-hmm. I'm 33. Oh, 26. Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I totally agree with you. I'm all about. I would get so frustrated, like. 
I'm all about the experience being in that thing I bought. Like, this is yeah. the thing, this is the... And, for, and that's why I get so pissed at Skyrim, because there's so many choices you make with your stats and your stuff early on. It's like, I have to go watch a video for this yeah. to even know. Because the point is, you couldn't figure it out. You would have to waste 40 hours of gameplay. Like, oh, no, that's how I actually want my stats to be now. I see that now. And I was like, I, don't, I can't have time to do that. But that's also but, part of the story. Uh, I, I, yeah. But you get that, but we say that now, but... Some of the most, po- and I agree with you, I am totally on board with what you're saying, but maybe I wonder if that has, like we said, it has shifted to the YouTubes and the internet because that, that po- showing the possibilities, just because now the most popular games are things like Fallout or like Rust or like, um, or like the MOBAs or League of Legends. Or Smite, you cannot touch those games without actually watching 40 minutes of tutorials on YouTube yeah. and understanding what the strategy of those games but are. But who has time for that? I know, but, but, but those are the most... Or something, you know, you get but is that the that. new generation? That's what I mean, but is yeah. that a, the generational thing? Is like the new kids now, they're like, oh yeah, I, I, well, I'm watching these YouTube things all the time. They, and Twitch, you know, because yeah. that's what I do now before I buy a game. Or today I was watching, I'm excited about getting Battlefront next week, but yeah. I was watching, you know, people in that early access play, and I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. But that's, but to that point, that's what that was doing for me. And maybe kids that grew up with the internet, and that's their source of seeing the possibility space. Like, oh, cool, I can do that, cool, that, I can do that, neat, I'm going to get it. You don't get that value unless the game has it in there. Yeah, true, true. Uh, Yeah, all value points. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And and actually, I think, you know, realising that, you know, everyone's a gamer now, and that actually not everyone's going to have the same trigger points through that learning curve but I think regardless of what your trigger points are knowing that this is a momentum that there is a cycle and you need to go through this because you know we want to encourage these players to feel like when they start properly engaging they're going to have something of value there and ideally if we're doing this expectation of future value every stage they're playing even if they're already engaged we're trying to encourage them to do something more and more and more and right. that's when you're going to get these guys who become so passionate about the game that they're willing and desire to spend more money. And it's not, I, I, like I say, I'm being pointy head business guy here because it's an easier way to use shorthand, you know, talk about monetization. Well, I'm sure people well, are interested yeah, in yeah, this yeah. Too. <laughs> Game developers uh, have to reach a point when they have to think like that. It's just, we're not going to make a game just... Because we want to make it, we have to, <laughs> we have families and we have to pay the bills. So, well, I think the thing is that people get a bit sensitive about it. And I, I'm not trying to say we're. I don't. We should never set out to exploit anybody, in any way. Yeah. No. And the point here, though, is that um, if you build on the basis of future value, then you'll realise that for some people, it's their hobby, not just a game they play, but it's their hobby. It's their lifestyle engagement. So if I have a, if I go sailing, if I play guitar, if I um, you know like uh, fast cars, the amount of time, effort, and money I am prepared and want to spend to show people this is the thing that I do is actually quite significant. And that's where we get the whales. That whales aren't people. It's a state of engagement, if you get my drift. So, you know, not everybody is going to want or need the golden AK-47, but some people do want it. Not everyone's going to want the ability to have a new strategy of play. 
So while everyone else is playing scissors, paper, stone, I've got lizard Spock because I've bought the upgrade. And that mm-hmm. idea that I can continue playing with everybody and everybody still have a good time, but I'm getting this slightly richer, deeper, more engrossing experience because I was willing to pay for it. That's where passion starts becoming you know, much more interesting. That's where there's scope for a premium game to be supported by the most invested players. And the most invested players are generally happy about that because they want everybody to have access to the great game that they love. Well, I think, too, is like you, I mentioned Seth Godin before. I don't know if you read a lot of his books or yeah. not. But Seth Godin's great. And he, he was on one of the things talking about how companies getting on board with this stuff now because we used to live in an economy of scarcity, right, yeah. where... I'm the only one. I control distribution methods. I control how you see things. There's three channels. There are network channels, right? But now we live in an economy of abundance. And in an economy of abundance, what people crave is connections. And so building, I almost think nowadays building, I mean, of course, the game's got to be solid and it's got to be those things and all that. We're going to go ahead and take that for granted, right? (laughs) But it's almost like you have to build little communities and worlds unto yourself in the games or just build a kind of... A mindset, or just that kind of movement around that, like you said, getting people excited because that's because you think about primarily now. I mean, except for the thing, but even Fallout, even though it's a senior player experience, I talked to Zach an hour today at work about it. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, hey, did you get that? Or, yeah, you got the pipe pistol. Like, well, let's do that. <laughs> but even we played. I've spent a hundred dollars on Destiny. I think it's an okay game. Yeah. But just because our friends, we're like, oh, let's go and do that. Let's play it together. Well, I right? did. I did buy the Pit Boy. So, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I think that counts. Super lucky. <laughs> I was fairly lucky. Yeah, I, I got into my local store at the right time. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean exactly that. But I think well, let's just step back a little bit because none of that works without the gameplay. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I know it's kind of an oxymoron in some ways to say it, but you know, oxymoron. Anyway, it's a moronic thing to say, probably. Um, but the the point I want to get to is that everything starts with an experience and I, I kind of try and break down that experience in terms of the um, the core mechanic then the context in which that mechanic is played so a sort of sense of purpose progression and then on top of that then you've got the other loop which is the meta game and for me the meta game is the stuff that's not the pixels right so if you think about that what that means is um so sociability is part of that, but also the format of the device you're playing on plays a big mm-hmm. part. So if I'm playing on a watch, it's going to be about the second, the moment. If I'm playing on a phone, it's going to be about a minute and a half of play. It's going to be on the move. It's going to be interruptible. There's certain characteristics of what I'm prepared to do, can do or not. On a tablet, I'm probably going to be a little bit more settled. On a PC, I'm absolutely going to be isolated in a separate room somewhere in the house, probably. Not always the case, but quite often. If I'm on a console, I'm going to be in the front room. I'm going to be occupying space other people probably want to. And, okay, there's all sorts of variations of that. But my point is that if you don't understand how your game is played and what part of someone's lifestyle it fits into, what niche, social niche it fits into, you can't make the right gameplay. It's got to take right. all those things. We just did, we just, our last interview we did was with Nicola Zaro. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
She's yeah, we just the first part of that came out today yeah. on the show, episode sixteen, and we talked about that last time. How you know you have the the nested layers of the easy fun, the hard fun, to the social fun, and then to the the meaningful kind of thing, yeah, just yeah. changing kind of fun. That's the four keys. But that's the same fun, thing. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, there's a, there's a whole. Oh, sorry, I'm just just starting a writing a second book with a friend of mine uh, called Bernie Good and we're going to look at the psychology of game design um, but what's fun, we're going to try and build up some new uh, ways of thinking about uh, I mean obviously a lot of it will be kind of stuff that's out there but I think a lot of this idea of identifying personalities of play or behaviours of play um, probably like different niches or you're yeah, saying like different personality well, types particularly things like the the Bartle types that we often find ourselves using. And in fact, I, I, mm-hmm. I know Richard reasonably well, and um, he, offered, he said this as well, that a lot of people are kind of taking those four types, the killer, the achiever, the socializer, and the explorer, I, I always forget, mm-hmm. um, yeah. these four types. And they're kind of, because they're types here isolated and identified inside mud, and they are generally kind of applicable in other places, people are taking them to assume that they exist in every game. Whereas, of course, they might, but they might exist in different proportions, or there might be different motivations that are underlying it. And I think there's a bit more science that ought to be done, trying to understand people's player motivation, um, rather than the sort of relative simplistic way that we've done it so far. And I don't know what the answer will be, but I'm hoping you know we can tap into some of the sort of latest research and see what we can pull out. Right. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating area. There's so much stuff out there um, looking at the game. But essentially, you know, I think the more that we look at what it is we're making and how it affects the player and what their expectations come out of that, that's when we're going to start making better games. And you have to, because the reality is getting found is always going to be hard. In fact, it's getting harder and harder. It's almost impossible. The only way out is to either have massive budgets or disrupt. And you can't disrupt if you haven't got something at the heart that the player loves. Well, so it's about building. I think more and more people... I mean, this is something we've had to do. I mean, that, that was kind of our mission statement with this podcast. We're only 16 episodes in, but it's just about building a community of Unity developers, specifically Unity developers, but just in general, and developers and artists and designers and stuff. And so, but, so we've been really kind of in that world but that's the one of the things we've talked about to game devs because I mean we make our own games too. But that's actually what we'll do going forward because, I mean, in the past you'd have that's the, the funny thing is like some game developers like I think Bungie had it for a while but they don't keep it up and irrational when they were really kicking they had a podcast every week and I was just glued to them because I was like this is great I love this I want to be part of this but those studios don't really allow for a lot of community and I think nowadays. It's like you can't just have one game and it comes out. Yeah, great. It did all right. And it did pretty good. So we're going to just go, we're just going to go radio silent. No, 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 no. You have to build a community and be there with them every day, even yeah. when you're making a new thing. It's because don't, don't dream it, be it. You've got to actually exist right. in that space. It's so difficult, though. I mean, the, there's some really interesting smaller studios doing a lot of this stuff. I think the Terratech guys and the Practice Space guys are doing quite a good job of this. Yeah. But they're actually putting their whole production pipeline public and they're like oh, interesting people. yeah and you go i mean obviously they have a public version i'm assuming they have a, a private internal version but um the the point is that they're they're engaging their community throughout the development process 
Well, that's a whole uh-huh. double fine yeah. model now. Like exactly. that's a double fine does. And I've bought, I'm not a, I don't like adventure games that much. I've never been into adventure. I just don't, I mean, they're fine and they're cute. I just yeah. never, you know, it's never been my thing, <laughs> but I've bought every one of their games for the past three years because I want to watch all the documentaries and yeah. I want to stay in, because I just think it's lovely and fascinating to like keep up with that stuff, you know, because then you're joining another community. You're like, oh, what are they, what's Tim doing this week? You know, it's neat. Yeah, that, that's a very important today because mm. see, with the, with the, short time span that games have to to become popular is you have to tell the people okay i'll make it decent so when you launch it there are a bunch of people that are going to to download it because they're interested already yeah and that's again i think treating players as an audience as much as as um, a, a market you know we're not just dealing with you know distribution centers and plastic boxes and and you know discs anymore we're dealing with a world that's completely changed and it's it's about the circles within circles that we connect through and the and the niches that we're passionate about and you know if you're not communicating all the time if you haven't got a voice if you haven't got ways of of you know people feeling like they have a connection with you why would they you know, they've got so many other places where they can find exactly, good yeah. content. You know, mm-hmm. like you say, it's this um, this this um, economy of abundance. You know, how do you get found when there is more content than you can possibly play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just yeah. the fact that people download your game is just, that's just the first step. You have to keep them playing. So. Exactly. And, and this is a really interesting one. We did some stu- uh, studies a little while ago. I've forgotten how long ago it was now. I think it was about 18 months ago, uh, maybe a bit less, um, where we did a, uh, an online survey of gamers and we tried to identify um, what they spent and what period of times. Um, I think if they spent less than an hour or an hour or so playing a game, the average spend of a spender would be something like 69p or something. I can't remember the exact number. And then uh, if they played for 10 hours or more, that went up to over $15. So there's a definite direct correlation between ongoing retention and increased revenue. I saw a stat from Playfab, a company that does um, back-end game services, and they were talking about how they... Um, I see players who spend all, who players who play for more than ten hours have sixty percent likelihood of spending money in the game. Now, again, it's all, that's at odds with this idea when we started of this two percent spending money. So let's strip away, uh, and I don't know what the answer is. If we were to strip away the numbers and say, okay, uh, what's the percentage of people who spend money after? Um, 10 hours of play. Let's say it was 60%. Well, if you think of all the premium content out there, you know, the disc-based as well as the digital premium content out there, I wonder what the percentage of people who actually spend money on a physical game is who play it. You know, in terms of piracy, in terms of playing your friend's copy, playing in your friend's machine. You know, it's not going to be much better than the, the stats we see in the the premium world when we start stripping back in terms of who is actually playing the game mm-hmm. if 80% of apps aren't being played at all that means there's only 20% of people 
were actually playing. And if it was 2% who were spending, that's 10% of those people. So, you know, we asked it, you know, it's a difficult one, and I don't know what the right answer is. Premium will never have the same payment profile per user, but it doesn't need to have because its whole model is based on not just one purchase, but on going purchase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know that that's the thing. It's it's scalable because it's you know arguably less scalable now because of the the sheer number of freemium games out there. So you're you're still having to go with substitute content, but it's still scalable and it still has this ability to have ongoing revenues. And that's why I say to people quite often, um, I'm you know I'm, I love repeat players, uh, I love repeat payers. But if someone spends money once in the game, I failed. Because if it only spent once, then it wasn't exciting enough and rewarding enough for them once doing it again. Right, right. So again, you know, it's, it's yeah. all about passion, isn't it? You know, if we don't care enough about our games to make sure that people love them, we we might as well go home. You know, it's much easier ways to make money than games. I mean, you know, go work in a yeah. bank. You know, seriously, you know, uh, if you've got the skill to make games as an artist or as a coder or whatever else, um, you know, you're going to be much better off going and working in a bank. You can make way more as a web developer than any kind of program. Yeah. yeah. Three times the salary in, uh, for, a, for a, a coder. In, and it's not as gray of an area. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, oh, it works great. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, we decide to choose the hardest things to do to combine artistry, creativity, writing, acting, um, you know, sound, music, uh, gameplay, all of which are really hard arts and crafts. I- we, I always say oh. that stuff. It's like it's like software development. It's like one, I mean, there's books just about software development. Yeah. How it's one of the hardest things to predict. That's why like the myth, mythical man month and yeah, all that exactly, stuff. Exactly, exactly. And it's yeah. the hardest. And there's that book called Dreaming in Code, uh, making the load the guy Lotus. Like all that stuff. That's already. I mean, that's getting already, past just yeah. getting past all that production, months of miscalculations and estimates yeah. and bugs and all that stuff. You get to the end of that. It's done. It's like, oh, is it fun? You're like, no. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's, that's okay. That's then this is just trash now. Because <laughs> this is just trash. It's like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, is, is it any wonder that big companies are? You know, when you look at the console, you know, er, you know uh, market, um, with fewer and fewer big games coming out, the big games are looking more and more like each other. I mean, I, I, I love Fallout Four and it's fantastic, but I also remember playing Far Cry. And and right. Skyrim and uh, Assassin's Creed, arguably, and you know, oh, I'm going to go from place to place. I'm going to find a set of missions. I'm going to do this mission. They're very similar in many ways. Right. And yes, of course, we love them, and and it's always going to be the ones that have the best artistry, the best stories, the best you know creative aspects that we're going to play most of. Uh, the ones that you know suck us into it, their worlds but is that a problem of like creativity or is that a problem of volume I think it's a because I mean in the past okay yeah that's interesting yeah I think in the, day, in the old day we could play every game but now there's you just like you said you can't we can't make you can't make every game right because you can't take the risk because it's such a hit driven business so that's why indies are so important because without a, a strong indie community 
who are willing and able to, in fact, frankly, can afford to take the risk. I, uh, if five people lose their house, you know, or, or eat ramen noodles for a month, uh, that's probably less problematic than if you had 300, 1,000, I mean, 1,000 people on uh, Destiny or whatever. I can't remember how many people. But it's like enormous numbers of people who would be wiped out if, you know, that game fails. So it's... And and that's what you don't realize, too. I mean, I don't know if we... I think Eduardo and Zach probably attested this, that once you work in... We work in, like, game industry, but it's like healthcare games, but it's still, you have huge projects that take years or six months, and the problem is you just... You're laying track, and there's locomotive. And so this is... We have teams of 12 people. I can't imagine you have hundreds of people. And... That's usually the, the, the common thing. And they're like, why don't they do this? This is like dumb, the screen. And they're usually the, the, the cry of the designers and the programmers like, yeah, we know about that. Everything you're complaining about, we know about. But we just, you can't change it. You can't, the, the, the machine is so big exactly. that you can only hope to address it next time. And then more stuff will pop up. And it's almost like they always say with like movies, like the fact that you got a great script, you got a great director, these perfect actors, this perfect stuff all worked out. And it actually was successful. Enough people went and saw it. It's a miracle. And so sometimes with these games, like, you get the idea that just that formula of Skyrim or Fallout, you understand why they might stick to that formula. You know, Fallout 4 is Fallout 3+, plus, really, because you're like, because it works, because so miraculously they discovered this loop that's amazing and just the elements that people respond to. gear out of alignment and it screws it. I mean, like I said, That's why they're like, why is their engine so buggy? I was like, because well, they're scared to change anything. What are you talking about? Because then it might change everything, well, you know? For me, Assassin's Creed... Um, Unity and, Assass- uh, and Far-, uh, uh, Far Cry 4 were were exactly this, where there's something about my love, and yet there was a, one thing out of kilter, and, and for me it was there were too many missions that I lost track of where I was. Oh yeah. I lost track of the narrative. And so I lost that, that draw, that, that sense of uh, expectation of future value. Because I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I could have. I think. They, I think they know. over. I think they overdo it actually. Yeah. Because I. I mean, even Black Flag. Those are great games. But their problem now is we get the we get the we get the experience of okay, you finish the prologue, open up the map, and there's a thousand markers yes. to do. It's like whoa, 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 what? Yeah, exactly. You're like, I, and it's like no, look at all the stuff you can do. It's like yeah, I don't feel like playing. I'm just gonna go to sleep. Oh, you've overloaded me. Yeah, you've overloaded me. Black Flag for me, that was perfect. This is whole, anyway, I won't go into being a pirate. It's too cool. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. I, I'm not trying to suggest that we want to delight in people losing money, by the way. I mean, you don't want to get the wrong impression. Um, you know, any individual who's involved in the game, it doesn't work, it's a tragedy. But when you look at the numbers, it's really scary. So if you look at iOS, um, you know, the App Store, the mead, so the average revenue on the App Store is something like $5,250 per game, lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now that's scary when the average game allegedly, and again, I'm, I can't remember the source of these stats, but it, it, don't, again, don't believe any stats I say, go check it out yourself. <laughs> um, $25,000 is the average cost quoted in this, in this report. Now, when, what was really even scarier than that was the median game earned $400. Wow. That means that 50% of the games on the market have earned four hundred dollars or less in their lifetime. Now, and we're still adding games. Why, in this crazy world, when we can have much better value, chance, success elsewhere, we're still doing this stuff? And it's because we still believe that we can produce things that are going to delight people. And again, 
what a brilliant medium that you can still do that. But, you know, what we're going to choose the right strategy for us. And not everybody should be trying to copy the sort of vast kind of free-to-play stuff I try to talk about. Um, and, and actually, I do talk, try to talk about small, tasty, tight bites worth of premium too. But, you know, there's a really good talk by a guy from King in um, uh, Lisbon uh, a few months ago. And he talked about plussing. In the you mean the, you mean a billionaire from King? No, no, no. He's <laughs> one of the, the designers. Hey, look, I know. Okay. I know. Well, Tommy, <laughs> not a billionaire. From, well, the, 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 my friend who was at King isn't the billionaire. He left too soon for that. Uh, were they just at five point nine billion? Just multiple billionaire. Yeah, yeah. I think he bought a jet. No, no, I don't. I don't know. Tommy's a lovely guy. Um, I wouldn't possibly comment on how much he earned or not. I have no idea. Um, but anyway, the this this uh, designer at King was talking about really simple way of looking at um, games. So you go, look at the game you like. How can you make it simpler? And then add one thing that's you. And, 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 okay, it's a really kind of absurd thing in some ways, but, you know, if you think about, you know, why, where does tower defense come from? Well, we had a real-time strategy game. That's too complicated for a tablet. Let's make something much simpler. Tower defense game, job done. Okay, well, how are we going to make it me? Well, we could do the art style. Okay, that's that. Kingdom Rush or whatever. Uh, we could um, have... I can take out the turrets and fire them in, in 3D. That's another way of doing it. There's all sorts of different tra- techniques. But this idea of simplifying rather than expanding is something we're often very bad at. But simplifying actually will help us reduce our risks. It will help us reduce the likelihood of screwing up. And if we go out with one idea that, of gameplay we can test it early. If we're smart about it, we can do that test early where we can start building layers of purpose and progression onto that one idea and test each one. And then we start thinking about the meta experiences, the community experiences and the device experiences. And again, we're layering. And this idea, I think, is really important when you start thinking of simplification and you start thinking about game development. Actually... We need to chuck away two-thirds, you know, 90% of the stuff that we want to do with the game. And just think of what is the core thing. You cut away and cut away and cut away until there's nothing left. What's the last, the very last thing you cut away and make a game on that? And then add one thing that's flavoured by your own sense of creative spark. I think mm-hmm. that makes it all these to get started because it gets rid of a lot of the bullshit that goes into it. And I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. I want to make a Skyrim, but I want to do Age of Empires, but every person uh, is the, the uh, a guy collecting the wood or the rock or the whatever, and that's individual play for in a world like Skyrim, all happening at the same time. Never going to get made. Can't be made. Too mm-hmm. big a scale. Um, so instead, I'm working on a game. I can't say what it is on publicly yet, but um, yeah, I'm working on a game in my spare time uh, with some guys, and we've got a simple mechanic. We know that mechanic works. We're gonna we're gonna make that from a UI and playability perspective beautiful and seductive and delicious, and then we're gonna iterate and add new content and iterate and add new content, and iterate and add new content. 
so you turn a product into something simple and repeatable and then you can produce content to deliver greater and greater retention. Right. That's my favorite design quote. I always It's always misquoted, but they said, like you just said, the design's not done when you can't add any more stuff. It's when you can't take anything else away. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. I don't know who said that. It's really annoying. I can never remember his name. Anyway. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like, but it's like a hundred years ago he said it. That's yeah. why it's, you never remember it because it's this other weird okay. designer. It's I'm like an architect to... or something. Exactly, it's like, yeah, exactly that. But, yeah, so, actually, we should wrap this up, because you need to go to sleep. <laughs> so, just real quick. <laughs> yeah. You're going to go play Fallout after this. <laughs> Who are we kidding? I'm going to be in a plane to uh, Kuala Lumpur tomorrow, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, you really got to get off then. Uh, real quick, before you leave, we've already, I guess you might have already answered it, but just leaving, what it's like a... Just a, a new developers or developers are getting into this should keep in mind if they're overwhelmed by the abundance and all that stuff, like what should be their mantra as they go through this? Do you really have to build it yourself? Uh, so oh, that's good. You know, I mean, that's, if you think about it, back to the simplicity thing, you know, this is why, you know, the David and the, and the team at Unity have really nailed it, you know. Hashtag asset store, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, why the hell not? I mean, and it's it's to me it was a democratization of 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 game development, which is a magic thing. Uh, when I you know I I I, I bit the Kool Aid you know drink the Kool Aid whatever I will find a good I'll mix them a method you can tell I need sleep now I mix them a method <laughs> but um, yeah. you know I, I genuinely drank the Kool Aid of that a long time ago and it was you know it's really true. If you do you really need to build an engine? Do you really need to build a social platform? Do you really need to build the art if you haven't got access to an artist if you are an artist then you absolutely do need to do that because that's what you bring as your plus one if you right. are building a game that can only be done with a particular peculiar set of physics and that it's only going to do that one thing sure build your own engine but there's almost no experience I can think of where you need to build your own engine Right. You know, there's plenty there's of engines many out there. there. And obviously, I'm going to be very pro R1 because it's brilliant. Well, we are. This is a uni podcast. I would have to change the banners if we did that. Like, I, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I, I really don't want to do that. Uh, I'll get fired. Uh, no, the, 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 the more important, though, the reason I say that, though, is it's, there's a, there are so many reasons to look at what having Unity can do to empower your ability to make things. How using the asset store, even if it's only at the relatively early stages, to just show people what's possible. Because you need to get players playing fast. Not just in terms of you know your development cycle, but also when they actually start engaging with the game as a commercial thing. If you're not getting them playing fast, engaging you know immediately and emotionally, you don't know what you've got. There's no point in going and building two-thirds of the game if it's not fun from the start. So build mm -hmm. it quickly. Get it in front of people. Decide to build the things you have to build. But build around what's possible. There's so much possibility in terms of the tools that are available. So many ways that you can engage and communicate and build these connections. Just do it. You know. But keep it simple. Keep it tight. And make it passionate and tell people about it. Nicely said. Yeah. <laughs> I like 
<laughs> we can't thank you enough for coming on. This is such a blast. We yeah, have fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Although one in the morning is always a bit. <laughs> oh, this, is, this might be the good time. It's like the secret. You got my crazy <laughs> tired. Yeah. 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 Where, uh, before we leave, where can uh, people, if they want to follow you or follow what you're doing, where can they get reach online? Oh, yeah. So um, I'm obviously on, uh, do a lot of stuff on the Unity blog. If you um, Google Unity blogs, Oscar Clark, I'm easy to find. I have a crazy um, hashtag, which is at... A-T-H-A-N-A-T-E-U-S, so Athanasius. Um, I probably spelled that wrong in, uh, in my head. I'm so tired. Um, but Athanasius is my Twitter handle. I'm often tweeting about various things that are happening at various conferences around the world. Um, I am at numerous events. Um, there's very few events you won't find me at um, nowadays. Um but you know, like I say, I'm easy. I'm easy to get hold. Just Google me. Yeah, I'm not yeah. the Canadian uh, professional cyclist, though. <laughs> I have a professional skateboarder with my name. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and a movie director and a few other things. Uh, so I, apparently, I've just beaten him on the Google stakes. Though I think he must have retired. So I, I think I've got the top three slots on Google at the moment. I can't do it. Andrew Curry's one, Andrew Curry's like a, it's a Scottish name, and Curry's from you know like a so town in Scotland. And so apparently Andrew was like the John of Scotland, right? It so is, it's like, it is, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so apparently my name's pretty common in other places. Not here, but it's over there. It's hugely so. common. In, in, in fact, I know several Andrew Curries. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Nice. It's, it's a bit, bit uh, busy. I'm going to raise my game. Yeah. See, that's the thing is I went for my middle name, um, so it works for me. And also have a hat. Um, you know, oh, yeah, uh, that's what You have to picture me in smart. a junior topper. Um, you know, right now, uh, uh, of course, I'm always wearing it. it uh, there are many people who think I'm um, permanently attached to it. That's smart. It's branding. Yeah, it works <laughs> for me. Works for me. But yeah, seriously, yeah, right. check out the blog site. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on there, um, and, and just look at what we're doing with you know Unity. I mean, we didn't go into Crossy Roads and the clever stuff that they do. Oh, you got to come back on then. That's yeah, what we got to we'll do. Come back and yeah. about all that kind we of love this is this is this is all this is. We love having conversations like this. Yeah. So, talk about Unity. Talk about other projects you're working on. All that stuff would be great. Yeah, exactly. I'm watching some of the, uh, your articles here. Oh man, they are interesting. Games made Thank for you, sharing, design driven in app purchases, a designer guide to using video ads. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, this is the thing. Is that, you know, when you've been doing this stuff for so long, and you start looking at the patterns between PC, online, console, mobile, uh, tablet, you kind of realize that actually we're not doing anything new. This is just product design. And it's one, in fact, forget all the stuff I said before, I'm going to leave you this one phrase. Identify and satisfy player needs. Perfect. You solve that, (laughs) you're going to be massively successful. How was it said again? Say it again. Identify and satisfy player needs. Okay. Roll down. (laughs) (laughs) Drum roll. (laughs) 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 (laughs)